Harbor Church. Great to see you. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. So glad that you've uh, chosen to join us. If you're joining us online, welcome to you as well. We're glad you're here. Uh, as Andy Stanley says, there are five questions that should be asked around major decisions in our lives. And if we are able to make better decisions, we'll have fewer regrets. Can I get a witness? Better decisions, fewer regrets. And so we're going to take each of these five questions in the next five weeks and unpack those and give as practical and applicable, meaningful uh, opportunity for you to process your life and your decisions in a better way. We have one verse of scripture today I want to read. It's in Proverbs chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Proverbs 27 and verse 12. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So thanks for doing that as you're able. Here it is. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. May God inspire us, instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. In this series, I'm going to give you five questions to ask every time you make a decision of any magnitude, any significance, whether it's a financial decision or a relational decision, an academic decision, a professional decision. We ask the right questions, we answer those questions honestly, and then we make our choice. Then we act. If we keep those in the right order, we'll make better decisions have fewer regrets. I want you to think about your life for a minute. Think about your family of origin. Think about decisions that were made in your family that made your life better or made your life worse. Maybe your father, if he was able to set the bottle down, walk away from that, your life would have been different. Maybe if your mother had stayed with your family rather than leaving your family, your life and your family would have been different. All of us have a story. All of us have a narrative. And we all can come to the conclusion that private decisions are not merely private. They all have public outcomes, don't they? They do indeed. So the most significant thing you do, maybe some, someone you're raising or someone you're leading or someone, someone you're managing or someone you have influence with somewhere in the world, and your decisions will determine the quality of that influence, the quality of your life. Your decisions, like Pastor Stanley just said, is like a steering wheel. You are where you are because of the decisions you've made. And you say, well, it wasn't always my decision. Well, that's right. So all of our decisions are not only private and personal, but they also influence the people around us. Your decisions then determine the story of your life. Good questions, if they are asked, and the process of these decisions will lead to fewer regrets. Good decisions lead 
lead to a better life. So a well-placed, appropriately timed, thought-provoking question along the way will set the stage for better decisions. Are you following? I mean, we just said it eight, eight different ways. Let's go back to our passage, Proverbs 27, verse 12. Look at it on the screen with me. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Now, the word prudent there, it means to be crafty or sensible or shrewd. It means to be wise. These are, these are people who connect the dots. They live their lives as if the events of life, the decisions in life, actually have connectivity. That what I do today will influence tomorrow. These are, these are prudent people. These are folks who think ahead. They count the cost. They're sensible that way. They know that all of the issues of life are interconnected so that the seeds I sow today are actually going to produce a harvest sometime later. So today's decisions will determine tomorrow's options and outcomes. Today's decisions always show up in tomorrow's relationships and other dynamics of life, academically, professionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. So today, we want to tackle the first question that should be asked when you're at the crossroads of a decision, a life moment where a substantial decision has to be made. And this is the question that we label the integrity question. Let me set it up this way. Let me put this statement on the screen. The easiest person to deceive is the person you look at in the mirror. Now let that sink in. In fact, let me rub that in. As it turns out, you are the mastermind behind most of the most regrettable decisions you've made in your life. You were the boss. You were the final say. You were the king of your castle. You were the one that decided. And these regrettable decisions had financial implications, <laughs> relational implications, professional implications, academic implications. You were there for all of them. Now, you've probably done more to undermine your success and progress then than any other individual on the planet. Congratulations. But it's true of all of us, isn't it? It's absolutely true. And granted, there were outside pressures and other voices and people making promises to you, but in the end, you are the one who decided. So telling yourself the truth, even if the truth makes you feel bad about yourself, this is integrity, the integrity question. So to make the best decision, you have to be honest with yourself, even if it makes you feel bad about yourself. Now, this is getting, this is getting into the challenge of asking meaningful questions. We have an adjective for people who refuse to take responsibility for the outcome of their decisions. We call them irresponsible. And you don't want to be irresponsible. If we're dishonest with ourselves when making a decision, we'll be dishonest with ourselves when affixing blame for those same decisions. So the integrity question, the first question that you should ask at the crossroads of your life, at a major decision, here's the point. There's only one point in the sermon. This is it. Okay, Bubba, come back to me. I lost you somewhere, I think, but there's only one point in the sermon, as I just mentioned, and this is it. This is the first question you ask. This is the point. If you get this, you'll, 
you'll have captured the moment. All right, are you ready? Here, here's the question. Am I being honest with myself? Really? Am I being honest with myself? Really? Why am I doing this? Really? Why am I avoiding him? Really? Why am I postponing that? Seriously? Why do I keep making excuses? Really? Why did I say yes? Why did I choose to wear this? Why did I choose to purchase or lease that? Why did I move in? Why am I moving out? Why don't I get help? Really? You may not be good at selling anything to anybody else, but it, when it comes to selling yourself a bad idea, you're amazing. <laughs> and the reason we know that is we've seen you do it. Whatever it was, that bad idea that you were embracing, if you'll remember, your mama tried to warn you about that. Your daddy tried to warn you. Your best friends tried to warn you. Your pastor tried to warn you. But you assured them that you knew what you were doing. I know what I'm doing. That's almost as naive as, as you know, a bunch of guys, you know, out involving themselves in the wrong things and someone says, hey, watch this. It's not going to turn out well, usually. I know what I'm doing. And now, in retrospect, you look back and you ask the question, what was I doing? How could I have done that? What's wrong with me that I would make a choice like that? But you were selling yourself. The same is true for most uh, uh, bad purchases we make. You know, we find ourselves uh, pulling out a credit card or debit card, handing it to someone we don't know buying something we can't afford, to impress people we don't like, with money we don't have. And everyone knows buyer's remorse. You ever felt that? Everyone has. It happens to us. And it's, so as soon as you start selling yourself on anything, you should hit pause on the process. Just wait. Sort that out. And how many of you know we rarely have to sell ourselves on a really good idea? Usually the selling has to be engaged when the idea is not so good. So when it comes to good ideas, we usually just know, well, that's good, that's right, that's proper, that's honorable, that's godly, that's it. Usually good ideas are fairly easy to sort. But the tougher decisions, the ones we put on the scales, the ones we try to figure out that are more challenging, they have to require honesty with ourselves, really. Truth is, um, selling ourselves, justifying, rationalizing, excuses we make, those all come hand in hand. Here's a statement from Francis Bacon. He was a 17th century British philosopher. He said, the human understanding when it was once adopted, an opinion draws all things else to support and agree with that opinion. And though there be a greater number and weight of instances to be found on the other side of the argument, yet these it neither either neglects or despises or else by some distinction sets aside and rejects. So he's theorizing that when human beings decide they're going to want something, 
that they, that they, they, they practice a routine in our minds and hearts. Uh, in in sociological, psychological terms, it's called confirmation bias. We naturally open ourselves up to anything that confirms what we already think or already desire, like getting into a bad relationship or buying something that we don't need. Let me, uh, let me just try to put some perspective on this by taking you back to about 600 years before Christ walked to the earth. And there was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah at the time named Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah wrote, wrote a book that's actually in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah came on the scene of history and he became the spiritual director, kind of the, the spiritual voice for the, for the nation at the time, the kingdom of Israel was divided north and south. So you had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And he was in Judah, and he became kind of a spiritual coach to a s- series of kings. And the first king was a guy named Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim uh, asked for Jeremiah's counsel. Now, there was a situation under the reign of Jehoiakim in Judah, the southern kingdom at the time, where they were paying an annual financial tribute to Babylon. The reason they were paying Babylon money was for the military protection of Babylon so that Judah could be protected from their enemies and go about their business in peace. And as long as Judah was paying Babylon this tribute, everything was great. But Jehoiakim comes along, and he's the king, and, you know, kings will be kings, and they have an attitude about such things. And he announces to Jeremiah that I'm going to stop paying the tribute to Babylon. I'm tired of paying that. And not only did he stop paying Babylon, but he changed banks. And he started associating with Egypt. Now, this was a bad idea. This was a bad decision. <laughs> because Egypt and Babylon were arch rivals, enemies. They hated each other. And when Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, finds out that Jehoiakim has withdrawn his tribute and and pulled all the money out of the account there and moved it to the bank in Egypt. He was livid. And Jeremiah told Jehoiakim, this is a bad idea. It's not only a bad idea, it's dangerous. You're asking for trouble. And sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar brings his army, surrounds Judah and the city, and and holds siege. Three months later, they they crash in the, the gates, and and Nebuchadnezzar takes Jehoiakim and, and puts him in chains and drags him off, takes him back to, to Babylon. Now, some people collect coins. Some people collect stamps. Some people collect cars. Nebuchadnezzar collected kings. He would, he would take over a people take their king alive back to Babylon and enslave them. And he would, he would also blind them. And then when he'd have guests that he wanted to show off in front of, he would bring out his collection of kings and they would have chains around their necks, chained to one another, and they'd have to walk in single file with their sh- hand on the shoulder of the, per- of the king in front of them because they're all blind. Because ne- Nebuchadnezzar would blind them. And, they, and he would show them off. He collected kings. And so while he's... While he's there, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, as the next king. He's only 18 years old, and Nebuchadnezzar go, goes back to Babylon. But three months later, he changes his mind. So he goes back to the city in Judah, 
and he, and he takes Jehoiachin as one of his new collect, collected kings, blinds him and drags him off, and then decides to make Jehoiachin's uncle the new king. And his uncle's 21 years old, and his name is Zedekiah. And Zedekiah now comes under the influence of Jeremiah the prophet, and they go for a little while, and they're paying the tribute, and everything's, everything's good. Everything's, every, everything's uh, peaceful. But Zedekiah as king, you know, and as I said, kings will be kings. Zedekiah says, I'm not going to pay that tribute anymore. And Jeremiah says to him, what is the matter with you? You know, can't you see what happens to kings here in Judah when they defy Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? And he said, you, you must continue to pay the tribute. And, and Zedekiah says, I'm not going to do it. Well, as predicted, Nebuchadnezzar shows up again, lays siege to the city. Zedekiah goes, oh, no, I've made a horrible mistake. Please pray that God will deliver us. And Jeremiah says, it's too late for that, dopey. You can't see the writing on the wall. You know what's going to happen. So then Zedekiah panics, and he, he tries to escape with his family and a few guards at night. But Nebuchadnezzar captures him. And the last thing Zedekiah sees is Nebuchadnezzar butchering Zedekiah's children one by one in front of his eyes. And it's the last thing he sees because he puts his eyes out and throws him in his king collection. Now, the next time someone tells you the Bible is boring, now let's try to make some context out of this. Have you ever known anyone in your life and they started making decisions that you knew were unwise, that were wrong, that were not only bad decisions, but dangerous decisions? And their decisions were so obviously bad, so clearly outside of the bounds of God's best plan for their life, that you just wondered about them. When I've told you the story of these three kings, somewhere in the midst of me telling the story, some of you, I hope most of you were going, why wouldn't the second king pick up on the, why wouldn't the third king pick up on, this is dangerous business to defy Babylon. Why not keep the peace with those boys? That Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he doesn't play. He's serious about all of this. And it's risky, it's dangerous to defy him. But what happens in our lives, in people's lives, when they go off like this, is that they get the attitude that, look, I'm running the show here. I'm the boss of my life. I'm the king of this kingdom. And I'll do whatever I darn well please. And you watch people do this. I've watched this, people do this for a long, long time now in pastoral ministry, where people said, well, I'm going to divorce this one and marry that one. And I'm going to leave this job and take that job for these reasons, and I'm going to walk away from my kids, and, you know, they're resilient, they'll be okay, and I'm going to move to another city and, you know, marry that one. And you, just, you, you, you see this happening, you just want to go, are you insane? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? That's not going to end well. I can predict your future. I can predict the future of your family. This is going to leave a mark. 
This is going to be devastating. This, the, you, you're establishing a generational curse in your life by that decision. Why in the world would you do that? And it's interesting that Jeremiah, through all of this advice he'd give to these kings that they wouldn't listen to, he explains why we're all prone toward this kind of self-deception and so good at selling ourselves on bad options. And here's what he wrote. I'll put it on the screen for you. It's Jeremiah 17, 9. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things. Now get a hold of that. Your heart, my heart, his heart, her heart, all God's children's hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah chose his adjective carefully, I think. And there's a difference between dishonest and deceitful. Dishonest is easier to spot than deceitful. I mean, when someone is dishonest, you either learn that quickly or, or eventually you learn you can't trust that person. You can't believe what they say. They're not honest. They'll tell you one thing and do another thing. Can't trust them. They're dishonest. That's a little more obvious because dishonest is kind of straight up. But deceitful, deceitful is usually uh, a mixture that includes the truth, a half-truth, the untruth, all mixed together. Deceitful people tend to be very complicated people. And you never know if they're yanking your chain or not because they're deceitful. And you can't predict what they're going to do. So deceitful is difficult to detect. Um, but the adjective that Jeremiah uses in this, in this verse is that our hearts, all of our hearts, are deceitful. So here's how it works. Here's how it works for me, at least. I can describe it for myself. Once our hearts get wrapped around something or someone... Our heart sends a message to our brain and says, hey, brain, I really want this. I want this thing. I want this position. I want this status. I want this relationship. My heart really wants it. And so the message is sent up to the, to the brain and says, now, figure out a way for me to get what I want. And our brains are very sophisticated. They're, they're highly, highly sophisticated computers. And our brains start processing what our heart wants. Our brain processes long enough until our brain spits out the answer and says, okay, I figured it out. What your heart wants, I will convince you now that you actually need. So this isn't just something that you desire. This is something that you need. And you can't live without it. And these are the reasons why. This is the rationale for why you need this thing or this position or this relationship. And your brain works that way. And once we're convinced we need something, it's easy to sell ourselves on it. And before long, we have this long list of justifications for buying it, for drinking it, for staying, for leaving, for lying, for asking it out, for inviting it in. But the reason we used to sell ourselves aren't really reasons, they're justifications, and in most instances, we, we even know it, but we fall for it anyway. We are so easily deceived by our own hearts. Now, back to Jeremiah 17, look at it on the screen. The next phrase, the heart is deceitful above all things, and what? look at it, and beyond cure. 
There's no cure. It's a permanent condition. Our hearts are deceitful. We don't, we don't outgrow it. We don't outmature it. We can't fix it. We're stuck with it. Well, I've walked with Jesus for 50 years and my heart now is pure. No, ma'am. No, sir. It is not. Your heart is deceitful and uncurably deceitful. We, we, we will have deceitful hearts all the way to the end. And then the next phrase, the final phrase of this verse, look at it again. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is clear. Nobody can understand it. I certainly don't. You don't. Nobody can comprehend it, which explains why we've all said at some point, I don't understand what I just did. I can't believe I did that. What was I thinking? What I made that decision. Look at me now. I have to live with this mortgage or this marriage or this job. Thanks for not raising your hands. <laughs> Gosh, we've all been there, right? So the question again is are you being honest? with yourself, really, when you come up to the moment of decision. The sooner you embrace the disturbing fact about yourself, the sooner you'll be open to information and advice that may conflict with what your heart is telling you, uh, but it will make you more suspicious and more cautious when the salesperson in you starts trying to sell you something. That's not going to be good for you. So here's my Here's my uh, homework assignment for you this week. I want you to encourage you to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with yourself. Get in front of a mirror and ask yourself out loud. Use your name. Now say it like this, Greg, are you being honest with yourself about that decision? Really? Are you, be, are you being forthright? Because you owe, your, owe it to yourself to know. It's really important to know, even if it points you in a direction you don't intend to go, it's still going to be good. You've heard the old adage, what you don't know can hurt you. That's an understatement. What you don't face up to, what you're not honest about, what you're not willing to lean into with eyes wide open, that not only will hurt you, that can kill you. That will destroy you. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar can come kill your wife or your children, blind you, and send you in chains. That's what can happen if we're not honest with ourselves. And that's the way most people live. Don't be most people. Don't be most people. Be different. Am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself a regret? Yeah. Let me ask you a few questions. Why do you continue to go out with him? Really? Why do you continue to go out with her? Seriously? Why did you file for divorce? 
Really? Why did you move in? Seriously. Why are you quitting your job? What's the real reason you don't call your kids? Or your mother? Or your father? Your brother or sister? Why don't don't you tell her or tell him the truth about what's going on? Really? It's brutal, isn't it? It's hard. Terrifying, perhaps. Clarifying, for sure. But ultimately liberating and empowering. Am I being honest with myself? Really? What is the most important decision any human being makes in their life? The most important decision anybody ever makes. The most important decision anyone ever makes is the decision to follow Jesus. There isn't a close second. A decision to say yes to the amazing love and grace of God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. To say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's the biggest biggest deal, biggest decision, biggest crossroads that you'll ever make. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, let me ask you, why not? Why not? It's the most important thing you do. Why would you hesitate there? Well, I'm the king of my life. I'm in charge here. I don't have to go along with everybody else or anyone else. I'm the ruler of my own decisions. I'll decide if I'm going to follow Jesus or not. Okay. Okay. Good decisions, fewer regrets. Did you get it? Let's pray. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves. Lord, it doesn't come naturally, we admit. But most of the things that are good for us don't. Don't come naturally. Jeremiah was right when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. But now you know, and now you know what to do about it. And when the prudent see danger or trouble coming, they do something. Let me just remind us, trouble is just one bad decision away. So decide. I will not lie to myself, even when the truth makes me feel bad about myself. I will tell myself the truth, really. Let me ask you this morning, where do you struggle most telling yourself the truth? What are your go-to justifications? I have a few. Jesus said knowing the truth can set us free, but acknowledging what's true can be terrifying. That's why people hesitate. Is it, is it possible that fear of what you discover about yourself by being honest with yourself is an obstacle to the freedom 
and the blessing and the peace that you desire? Is it possible you're holding on to a lie, a comfortable, comforting lie that is holding you back from what God is inviting you into? Here's the reminder. Truth will set you free. So, Lord, remind us that on the other side of being honest with ourselves is where life and where peace is found. Lord, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?